Welcome to IP Frequently. IP Frequently is brought to you by Dominion Harbor Enterprises and is sponsored by IPedia. IPedia, innovation clarity that provides real, actionable patent intelligence. Join our hosts, David Pridham and Brad Sheaf, advancing the issues of intellectual property. Hello and welcome to another episode of IP Frequently. I'm here as I always am with my good friend and compatriot, Mr. David Pridham. And we are looking forward to this podcast because we've got another special guest lined up, Marshall Phelps. IP Hall of Famer. Uh, IP Hall of Famer, Marshall Phelps. You know what year? You remember what year? 2015? I believe so. HOF 2015? Yeah, yeah well, well, you just look on the autograph on the baseball when you'll right. that's Correct. figure it out. And you'll, you'll be able to recognize him by his, his golden jacket as well. We're excited because Marshall's agreed not only to appear on the podcast, but also to be a member of the Dominion Harbor Board of Advisors. We're pleased by that. We're honored by that. And we look forward to talking with Marshall, who's on the line now. Well, folks, we're uh, pleased, as we always are here on IP Frequently, to have another guest. Uh, this time, we're excited to have Marshall Phelps on board with us today for the podcast. We're excited at uh, the Dominion Harbor Group because Marshall has agreed to be on our board of advisors, and we certainly can't think of a better way to start a board of advisors than with having Marshall on board. And uh, as many of you may be aware, Marshall is also a former corporate vice president of IP for both IBM and Microsoft, and just an all-around swell guy. Is that fair enough, Marshall? I like the swell guy part. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, very good. Again, we appreciate you being on with us. And, uh, you know, I thought we would just start off, given your long history in IP and the, and the vast experience you've had with it, and just kind of give us a sense of you know, what your experience in the IP world has meant uh, for you viewing where we've been over the last few years and kind of where we are today and what some of the more important um, aspects or considerations are for those that are in the IP field today as, you know, given through kind of a historical perspective? Okay, well, that question is long enough for a book. So let, let me see if I can uh, net this out. I think the biggest change in the IP world is that when I got into this thing, uh, Jesus, about almost 30 years ago, 35 years ago probably, um, I, I was all underwhelmed by how much IP uh, mattered. It really didn't matter very much at all. Uh, yes, people got patents and things like that, and then there's a long history of patents being in, important in the United States. But in terms of the way senior executives, CEOs, and boards of directors looked at IP, uh, it didn't matter very much. As a matter of fact, if you asked, and this has been true except for maybe the last 10 years, if you asked most senior executives, even CEOs, whether they had an IP strategy, um, they would look at you dumbfounded at the question. Uh, today, or within the last 10 years, if you ask CEOs that question, they would say, we certainly do have an IP strategy. And you'd say, well, what is it? And they would say, go ask the legal department. <laughs> and, and that's true 95% of the time, I would say. Now, the problem with that is there's nothing wrong with legal departments. I'm a lawyer by training, among other things, but it, 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 it isn't necessarily a, a department that historically in companies adds economic value, generally speaking. They are 
defensive in nature, and they need to be defensive in nature, but they are not optimizing intellectual property uh, at, at all. So in the main in corporations still today, intellectual property kind of sits in the files uh, the, uh, of, 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 uh, of, of the legal department. Uh, and that's unfortunate in my view. The other thing that is, in my view, caused this and hasn't cured it at all is that the accounting systems don't take into effect or, or to, don't take into account intellectual property very well. As a matter of fact, intellectual property rarely shows up on a balance sheet of a corporation. Occasionally it does if there's a transaction involved in intellectual property, but beyond that, you will not see the assets of the uh, intellectual assets of a corporation uh, appear on the balance sheet. In f that is in spite of the fact that there's been a sea change in the value of intellectual property as a proportion to the value of the corporation. So let's just go back on this. 25 years ago, um, I would say that uh, uh, corporations were uh, valued, 80 balance sheets were valued at 80% uh, property, plant, equipment, and maybe 20% other things like intellectual property. Today, those ratios from an economist's point of view have been shifted and inverted, and so that 80% of the modern corporation is intellectual property value. Now, if that's true, uh, and not having it on the balance sheet means that uh, uh, corporations are undermanaging themselves to a great degree on intellectual property, and uh, I believe that is true, and uh, and so that's the that's the state of where I think we are today, and it provides opportunities for companies like. Uh, uh, Dominion Harbor uh, to figure out ways for companies to uh, uh, to better manage and optimize their intellectual property. So there's a short answer of a couple things, Brad, and I'll stop there. Well, great, thanks. No, I, I think you know your points are well taken. That as we as we move more into a knowledge economy, then your innovate your ability to innovate and what those innovations are become increasingly critical to your business and the business's ability to survive, and then being able to protect those innovations and then subsequently monetize them becomes equally as critical. And so, you know, what would you say are some of the of the biggest hurdles to being able to monetize your innovations? I'm thinking along the lines of, you know, some recent legislation as well as, uh, as well as, um, you know, some Supreme Court decisions, uh, et cetera. Well, the, the 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 smart alecky answer to that question is that the Supreme Court has not done a great bunch of favors to uh, intellectual property owners in the last five years. There have been s at least six decisions uh, by the Supreme Court that have uh, taken together uh, cut down the effectiveness of owning uh, IP. Uh, from from a lot of people's uh, standpoint, um, even going so far as to question whether certain kinds of technology are really patent eligible. And I'm thinking primarily of the difficulties you see in business method patents and the difficulties you see in in, in, in software. And it's true that uh, all business pat method patents are software, but the reverse is not true. All software are not business method patents. But it it, it is hard to uh, make uh, uh, finite judgments uh, on on those kind of things. So if you add all that up and you 
you uh, uh, stiffen the test for patentability, which some believe has been uh, uh, happening, and uh, unfortunately so, depending on your point of view. Um, uh, what you what you have is that you have uh, less firm ground to stand on uh, a, a, as a patent owner. This is, in many, and I'll state my own opinion, in my opinion also, uh, a very unfortunate circumstance in the United States. I mean, after all, if it wasn't for patents in the United States, we would not be the invention economy that we still are today, even though we seem to be slipping <coughs> a, a little bit. Uh, if you go back to the beginning of the patent system in the United States, uh, which, by the way, we are the we until uh, I think uh, four or five years ago, were the only country that had intellectual property as part of its base law. In our case, it's the Constitution. Uh, we were the only com country that ever had that until about five years ago. I think Argentina is in there now today, but that's it. Uh, so we were very special when we came to intellectual property. Um, the patent system started in uh, 1790 in the United States. It was run by, of all people, Thomas Jefferson as the first uh, commissioner of patents in the United States. And, uh, and uh, we... Uh, had a patent system that was meant uh, completely to interest the common man to invent in the United States. Heretofore, invention had been the province of the wealthy. Uh, in England, for example, if you wanted to get a patent, it cost you uh, 10 times the annual wages of the average common man to get one patent. So therefore, patenting was the, was the game of the, of the, it was the sport of kings in, 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 in the rest of the world. We we came with the exact opposite approach, making it easy for people to patent. And by in 13 years later, we uh, had already passed Great Britain in the number of patents being issued in the United States by uh, uh, by a fairly well. And uh, by uh, 1860, we were getting seven times as many patents as as Great uh, as Great Britain. And moreover, <laughs> people who patented in the United States were 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 uh, 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 basically uneducated people. Um, many of them uh, left uh, left uh, school to support their families, and they could because the way the U.S. system works, become full-time inventors, and that's exactly what what happened in the United States. We even went so far as to give people who applied for patents uh, free postage, which may not sound like a big deal until you remember that free postage back in those days made somebody uh, 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 put something in a saddlebag and ride a horse from Ohio into Washington, D.C. to file a patent. That was a very expensive uh, proposition at the time and a, big, and, a, and a big deal. But that's the length that the U.S. government would go to to encourage patents. The situ situation has been, uh, uh, in my opinion, turned on its head in the last few years, and that makes the situation a little more dire for proposed uh, patent owners. I'll stop there, Brad, and let's read poking that. So, now, Marshall, this is David, and I think that's incredibly helpful, and I think one thing that's lost on a lot of folks who look at the patent system through the 2017 lens is really how it started, and I think it's incred incredibly important to talk about the role patenting and innovation had with the founding fathers and the, and the, the formation document of this country, and Jefferson and Washington being intimately involved, but Sort of fast-forwarding through to today, I think another point really resonates that you make, and, and that's the damage the Supreme Court's done uh, in the past decade or so to 
uh, the innovation economy. And, and one thing I'd like to get your take on is the, the eBay opinion and the concept of being able to, to in the past, get injunctive relief for um, uh, for uh, a finding a patent infringement. It seems like that was the per se rule prior to eBay. And since eBay, um, uh, obviously that has, that has gone away to the point where even uh, direct competitors, Apple and, and, and Samsung in a suit, uh, Apple on a finding of infringement can't get uh, injunctive relief. Talk about the harm that that opinion in and of itself has done um, to the patent landscape. Well, I, I think you've said it pretty well yourself. It, it, it goes back to the point I was trying to make, uh, inartfully, I will agree, early, which was if you're a property or patent, patents are just property rights, if you think of it that way. That's the way to think of it. It's really taken away much of the advantage of being a property right holder if you can't stop somebody from using your property. I mean, if you think about it in very base terms, you own a piece of property. Let's say it's your house. Uh, somebody can't just walk in there and pitch a tent in your living room and start living there. Well, that's exactly what patent infringement is. Now, I grant you that you've got a you've got different proof points and things like that, and it's probably easier to point out to the uh, local uh, constab constabulary that somebody is living in a blue tarp on your living room. But uh, a patent infringement is is really no different than that kind of a property right. And unfortunately, today it's very very difficult to uh, to execute that property right. In, in an effective manner. Now, I will agree with some who say that uh, the the default mechanism that was injunctions was probably uh, too broad. But if you look at it in, in another way, we've probably overcorrected in favor of, uh, of uh, uh, the non-patent owner, if you will, uh, in, in, with these six uh, or so uh, Supreme Court decisions. And that overcorrection has has really led to, uh, uh, in my view, uh, 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 a situation that needs to now go back the other way, um, and 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 start to uh, uh, re uh, re-energize patent rights, if you will. So two two questions come to mind there. One, I mean, maybe more of a philosophical question than anything else. But what? Why do you think the Supreme Court uh, over the last decade? has um, really come out strong against patent rights seemingly on every single important opinion. And then yeah. two, how do, you, how do you turn this around? How, how do you, uh, you correct the overcorrection? Is it, is it legislative? Is it judicial? Is it administrative? Is it a combination of the three? Okay, remind me. I'll, let me go back and say, you know, uh, 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 how you correct it first, and then we'll go back to your first question. If you wanted to correct this, obviously you could look at legislation. Um, the problem with it is, is legislation is kind of a little bit of what got us into this mess. Um, because what, what happens here is we have a tendency it's, it's, it, it, to overcorrect the problem. And if the problem uh, was that we had people who were over-exercising the system, if you will, a.k.a. patent trolls, um, uh, then you correct against patent trolls, and what happens is you have to be careful that you don't overcorrect in that problem. So what's happened? Well, there are people who view that almost anybody who asserts a patent is a patent troll. 
So we have this definition sitting out there, uh, which is a very easy definition to demagogue and deal with, and very easy to uh, get everybody in Congress all excited, and which is what's happened, and then we overcorrect in legislation. Now, judges are people too, and they're political just like everybody else, and they know that there have been a whole lot of uh, situations where uh, uh, patent trolls might, might have geared up. And in the process, what they do is they overwrite decisions or they overdraft legislation. And that's exactly what's happened in this country. So why is that happening? Well, it's the old problem of a few bad actors uh, 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 kind of prove the, prove the problem, if you will. If you think back about the beginning of the patent troll, what you had on your hands, or especially when you think about the Internet and Wi-Fi, <clears throat> is that you had a situation where people who ran coffee shops and maybe made an annual profit of maybe 10000 bucks or so were getting sued left and right by people who said, you're infringing my patents and I want money from you. And it got to the point that the, many of these people were basically defenseless. And so what they did was they would pay tribute for all of this kind of thing rather because they couldn't afford to litigate. That kind of a result echoed very strongly in the halls of Congress and I think also in, 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 in the judicial system of the United States. Couple that with a, with a situation where we had a few, well, few, we had maybe two, certainly one, very friendly plaintiff's friendly patent jurisdiction in the United States, uh, where it seemed like uh, uh, plaintiffs were always going to be able to prevail, and, and, and people thought the system was unbalanced. As a result of correcting that balance, in my opinion, we've swung too far the other way. Well, yeah, Marshall, and, and this is Brad, and I, I think, um, you know, first of all, the, those narratives have been way overplayed. And, right. You know, you, right. th there's you know, there was one example I can think of of someone who was an, an organization, an entity, a patent owning entity that fairly famously was sending out demand letters, but not actually engaging in in litigation. And, you know, even on the Eastern District of Texas, when you look at the statistics there, you know, it, it's widely renowned to be plaintiff friendly, but the statistics don't necessarily bear that out. I mean, it, they did have fairly. Uh, um, stringent rules that moved the litigation forward and, and forced, you know, forced folks to become engaged in litigation, therefore spend money on the litigation. But when you look at the actual statistics, uh, it wasn't overly in the plaintiff's favor. And then, of course, you've got the federal circuit that's overturning every decision or most every decision, particularly on the damages side in any case. And so I think what's actually happened is, is you've got these false narratives that ironically are not being proclaimed by those that were, you know, so famously theoretically hurt by it. It's not the mom and pop coffee shops that are lobbying on Capitol Hill. It's not the mom and pop coffee shops that are behind the high tech innovators, uh, whatever they are, association. It's big tech. It's corporations that have combined uh, um, market caps in the trillions that yeah, are actually it isn't, it benefiting it from it, it, this it, narrative. It isn't even all the big. Uh, high-tech companies either it, it it's a few of them sure um, yeah no that's fair that's and, fair uh, but it but and, it's certainly and, not mom and pop coffee shops no no i didn't say that it was i'm just saying that the that they they have 
they've kind of ridden that horse, if you will, and uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, marched in the halls of Congress kind of indiscriminately as 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 alleged victims when many of them aren't. I, right. I, I I'm not arguing that point at all. I'm just saying that that was the probably the uh, the 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 of the of the of the issue here were were, were the few bad examples that that did come and did exist a few bad examples and and it was written by a few companies who thought very much in their interest to uh, to uh, lower the uh, raise bar of taxability if you will uh, for their own purposes. It's interesting because I, I think that's exactly right, Marshall. I, I when you, I, you know, first in terms of the coffee shop example, I, I, yeah, I know there's that there 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 was the one um, um, settlement with the company that sent out ten thousand demand letters, and obviously that's um, that's that's absurd what they did, and they were penalized for it, uh, and and it was pretty swift. But in terms of the 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 narrative, the false narrative that these handful of tech companies or, or dozen or so tech companies have have um, have created what's interesting about it is they um, yeah they, they they it's a good lesson in in how to play the political game right they, right. they had had a sort of and quite frankly a lot of them were built on patents if not all of them uh, look at Amazon look at look at Google I mean those companies fundamentally were built on patents and wouldn't exist but for uh, but for the, the those seminal patents that started their business. Well, what and happens is what happens is you know, in many of these cases, and this is not a new game, that many of these companies uh, uh, make this argument until they get a certain point on their own patenting efforts, and they don't need it anymore. You can go back, you can hear the same argument uh, back in the days of uh, when Oracle and Cisco were younger. Making the same arguments that, that there shouldn't be patents in their area. Meantime, they're accumulating patents left and right, and that's true with Google today. Yep. I might add on this same point that you're on, just to show you the power of this. Google is alleged to have had well over seventy lobbyists marching in the halls of Congress uh, uh, on on patent legislation the last time the American Events Act uh, was looked at. That's well, a, that's think, that's incredible. Just think about that. Seventy people, full time job, marching around Congress on this point. Yeah, that that is that really is incredible. And one of the things that we've sort of been developing on this end, and we've talked to some folks about it, is when large companies stop innovating, right? They they by definition, when you a lot of these companies get get so big that they stop innovating, um, they uh, acquire tons of patents from third parties, doing exactly what. They're decrying in, in you know the, the NPE or patent troll or whatever you want to call it, but doing exactly what those companies that they're attacking do. Um, when 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 those companies stop innovating, what's the best way to advance their business and continue to grow? Well, and it, it, what we see is copying, right? Copying. Sure. And uh, you look at what Facebook does to Snapchat. You look at what Google does to Facebook, um, and, and and also heavens knows. Dozens and dozens and hundreds of startup companies where in the old days, I mean, even heck, 20, 25 years ago, those companies would have been acquisition targets. But rather than that now, what we're seeing is uh, these companies either have patents where they've disclosed their inventions or they have patent applications that are published. And then rather than go acquire those companies, rather than partner with those companies, 
Google just or, or Facebook or, or, you know, one of these big tech companies that have stopped innovating in many key fields where there's growth just takes the ideas and, and run, runs with them. And they say, look, um, we're not going to license your patent. We're not going to acquire your company. We're not going to pay you fair value. And if you don't like it, you can sue us in Northern California. And good luck if you ever get a verdict holding it at the federal circuit level. Well, I think I think that piece of it, the other piece that, that makes it even probably more treacherous is is under the new procedures of the American Vents Act, you can ch start challenging the validity of a patent at, at almost any time from the day it's the application is filed and uh, and 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 you know hold things up left and right with 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 a kind of interparty review and that's exactly what's going on it doesn't even have to get to litigation um so yes is is, is that being done sure it is because people are using what the system gives them to use yeah and that's amazing and and, and when you look at IPRs um and 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 really um you, you sort of have these three different you know, major components of the American Vents Act, the, um, the the two of them administrative, the the CBMRs, the IPRs, and then the um, new litigation rules, including joinder, that quite frankly raise the cost of litigation. Um, but when you focus on IPRs, boy, I, I think as you as you look more and more and peel back the onion at what uh, is happening with the PTAB and with these trials, um, it, it it really is amazing when you look at the judge stacking. When you look at the Ultratech opinion that came out yesterday with Judge Moore writing for the court, um, it, it, it seems like there's almost an institutional arrogance at the PTAB that is dead set on invalidating um, patents that are held by certain types of companies. What, what do you think about that? Well, I think the problem with the PTAB is that for whatever reason, the PTAB isn't forced to follow the precedent that comes through the real courts in this country. And I, I think that's terribly unfortunate. If there was one thing I would do, as I would say to the PTAB or any kind of these kind of extra legal tribunals, that you still have to follow the precedents that the courts have come up with over time. And the PTAB doesn't seem to think it has to do that. And I do think that's one of the changes you're going to see legislatively uh, coming down here in the near future. Meantime, the damage will be done. I don't I don't. Uh, argue against that by the way one of the things one of the things i've heard recently is is sort of this concept of an unparalleled intellectual capital transfer from small entities individual inventors mid-sized companies to, to large, large incumbents and, and yeah. sort of this reverse trickle down when you talk about tax policy of um you know these massive transfers to the rich this is sort of an intellectual property equivalent of that that you've seen during the obama years it's uh it's it's probably overstated a little bit, just like the going the other way was overstated before. Uh, but you know, it, it it's a concern. There's no question about it. And and oh, by the way, the other thing that's happening while we're doing this, people who look at the patent system and they they rank countries. You know, the United States was ranked number one for God, I don't know, probably the last thirty years. And all of a sudden, last year, because of all of this that we're talking about. The U.S. ranking slipped to number ten in one year. That's unbelievable. So think and about that. Yeah, that really it. should be that really should be unacceptable. And and when when you look at um, the transition from um, Director Lee to um, you know now Director nominee Andre yep. Yanku from Arel, what what do you think he? So obviously he's a, he's a bit of an unknown. 
to a lot of folks. He was the managing partner at Irel and Manella, a large intellectual property firm. Right. Um, what, what do you, what do you, what do you um, hear about uh, Andre Ayanku, and what do you, uh, what do you hold that hope for in his, uh, in well, his I don't, uh, directorship? I, I don't know him, and 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 uh, you know, all I know is just what you've just said. Uh, he, he's a he's a you know lawyer in a very large uh, law firm. Um, uh, and that's and that's really I have not had the experience of meeting him or seeing him on the you know the normal IP normal on the IP circuit if you will you know as a speaker or anything like that so I really don't have a clue uh, so it's going to be very very interesting. Is there anything you, that that you think is coming down from the Trump administration in terms of directives as to where the um, patent office needs to go, or do you think it's literally a, a blank slate where the director is no, going to come think in? It's and... a, I think it's a blank slate so far. And I, I think that that is awaiting a new director. It usually goes the other way. The director ought to be saying to uh, Wilbur Ross and the, you know, the, 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 the Secretary of Commerce, and then up from there on, here, well, here, here are my recommendations for what needs to be done. So you can expect, by the way, you can expect Lobbying does not only exist in Congress. You can expect his door will be darkened by all kinds of uh, interest groups and people uh, 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 saying, here's, here's, here are our thoughts for how you ought to run the office. I can guarantee you that. Marshall, what are some of the things that if you were in his position uh, that you think you would make priorities for your, you know, first, let's say, 100 days in office, if you will? Yeah, well, I, I would have... Uh, uh, certainly, uh, uh, two. One would be to take a long, hard look at this PTAB situation and 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 come up with some recommendations for how how that how that PTAB needs to operate going forward. Because my view is, if they don't do that, the PTAB will not survive over time. Over time could be twenty years, but you know I, that's my view. So that's number one. Number two is I would take a long look at the. 10,000 patent examiners in the patent office who are overworked and undervalued and take a look at that whole situation and see, make sure you've got the morale in that office where you want it to be. Because after all, if that office starts to fail, we've got a real serious problem on our hands and all, or we're just wasting our time talking about it here. Uh, so I think those are the first two things I would do. Well, I, look, I, I think we can all agree that the PTAB, at a minimum, needs some form of overhaul. And, uh, you know, certainly it's our hope that, um, you know, we'll see it. And then, you know, good leadership is going to create a good organization no matter what you're talking about. So if he's got the wherewithal to actually lead that organization and not be overly burdened by a particular philosophy, which we believe Michelle Lee brought to the job, uh, or a political bent, then I think that the examiners are going to take notice of that. They're going to see that he, uh, they're going to see that he should, um, you know, yeah. he cares about them, that he cares about the actual examination of patents. He cares about the property rights they create. And I think that'll improve morale. Yeah, I, I do too. I obviously do. So those, but those are the two that I would focus on immediately. And they're both, by the way, kind of within the power of that office to do. Uh, okay. Well, Marshall, we really appreciate it. So, uh, yeah. This half hour has flown by, and, and again, we appreciate the time. We appreciate your insight. And uh, if you uh, 
want to take just a couple of minutes, and, and, and I know we were talking earlier before we came on that you've got a, a program now going on out of USC. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, very quickly, uh, uh, one of the things that it's always amazed me, especially uh, if you go back to what I said in the beginning of how important this stuff is economically, um, it isn't taught in any schools. Uh, and uh, uh, even if you look at uh, business schools and uh, and uh, law schools and accounting schools, uh, this uh, the, these these uh, the the accounting and, and and the financial issues and the economic importance of intellectual property is rarely covered in other than an occasional seminar. And what USC has done is uh, is uh, start the first undergraduate course in intellectual property. Uh, in, 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 in any university anywhere, and uh, it's a full semester. And I was out in USC last week for the opening of that, of that uh, effort, and it's being funded by the Michelson Foundation. And Michelson, those who you may know, was a very famous inventor in the medical field, uh, and uh, he is funding this uh, this program at USC. So that's what I was doing at USC last week, and uh, I'm very excited about that effort. Yeah, no, it sounds great. And, uh, again, those of us in the IP field can certainly appreciate you know, what it could mean to IP to have folks come out of an undergraduate program with a better understanding of what it is, a better ability to have a conversation, an educated conversation on the topic, and to understand the issues that are important to IP, especially yeah. as we continue to move into a knowledge economy. And what they've done is link it to uh, what they think is kind of a life skill of entrepreneurship. Uh, and, I, and I agree with that. And so that you're not doing it in a vacuum. We're not going to teach you about intellectual property just because it's a, 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 a fun topic. We're going to teach it to you because it's going to be useful to you going forward. Good, good. Well, again, Marshall, we appreciate your time. We appreciate yep. your insight, and uh, we appreciate you being with us here on IP Frequently. Okay. Well, thanks. Well, all right. Again, we appreciate having had Marshall on. Lots to uh, think about there. It was very illuminating. It was very illuminating. Well, you would expect nothing less from a Hall of Famer. Correct. And he kept the coat on the entire time. The entire time. The no green, matter where. The green jacket. The green. No matter where he wandered yeah. throughout that interview, and I believe he made some wanderings, he kept the jacket on, he kept his head held high, and he illuminated some of the, uh, the key issues in the intellectual property space that we're facing now. And again, we appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we look forward to seeing you next time on IP Frequently.